This podcast with Dr. Rick Stevenson is brought to you by Don Green, the Executive Director of the Napoleon Hill Foundation. Please listen to podcast number 787, where Don and Green speak about the Napoleon Hills Foundation's new book entitled Success, Discovering the Path to Riches. In their interview, Don discusses the fact that success is measured in many different ways and learn about the 15 other steps in success discussed in The Laws of Success by Napoleon Hill. I hope you enjoy this interview with Napoleon Hill Foundation Director Don Green. Now enjoy our featured interview on Inside Personal Growth with Dr. Rick Stevenson, the author of a new book entitled 21 Things You Forgot About Being a Kid. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Rick, as I do every time, I thank the listeners who come from around the world that listen to our podcast all the time. I keep seeing people in such amazing places, you know, Africa and Indonesia and everywhere. And it's just fascinating. And joining me from Seattle today is Dr. Rick Stevens. And we're going to be talking about Rick's new book, called 21 Things You Forgot About Being a Kid. Rick, good day to you. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm good. Thank you very much. Well, it's a pleasure having you on. And um, I always start these interviews by letting our listeners know a little bit about the guests. And Rick has a bio. It's kind of like the who's who bio. Um, He's a wonderful guy. We've had several conversations. And he was introduced to me by Doug Holiday, who recently just wrote a book and is in our um, podcast called Rethinking Success. And as a result of that, there's been a whole network of people. Uh, Path North, we got on the line yesterday. It was great, Rick. Um, So let me tell him about you. He's a filmmaker, philosopher, listener. He's leading a practice of guiding verbal journaling and to unlock self-discovery, emotional intelligence, and personal narrative empowerment. Uh, He's filmed over 5,500, but I think it's actually 5,700, isn't it? In-depth interviews with kids and teens from 12 countries as part of a longitudinal project that he calls Story Q, Method of Inquiry Dedicated to Raising Emotional Intelligence. Uh, He is a creative and passionate combination of award-winning filmmaking and a doctorate of philosophy from Oxford University in England. He has directed, produced, and are written 12 featured films and 100 hours of television, working with artists such as Robert Redford, Hugh Grant, Christopher Plummer, and the list goes on. He's an author, a public speaker, a husband, a father of four, and splits his time between Seattle and beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. Well, Rick, you know, you start this book off in the introduction. And uh, I find it really fascinating, the book itself, the stories, the depth of the stories. And I'm going to direct my listeners to to listen to or see your 5,000 project that you call it, that's, that's mentioned in the book. And we'll put the links in the blog. But you know, you mentioned that you had wonderful parents, but that not everything was fully said in your family. And that as a child, you never heard conflict. I did hear conflict in my family. It was a little different. But your parents were model parents, both educators, very wonderful people. What is it that was being unsaid in your family that seeded your fertile young mind? Because you work with 
kids all the time and you see how they observe things, how they take it in, how emotionally it affects them, you also were being affected because you wouldn't have written about this in the introduction if it hadn't have been that way. And what is it about you that wanted to get to the truth of what really should have been said? Well, I think it eventually came out of desperation. I was, um, I spent years and years looking for the right relationship and went through a lot of relationships. And um, when I uh, finally was with someone for three years and they said, Rick, I said, I love you. I just, I just don't feel the certainty. And she said, well, can, will you go into therapy with me? And I said, therapy is for people with problems. And she looks at me and I'm like, okay. So we entered a therapy together and three weeks later, um, we broke up and I got to keep the therapist. And I realized at that time that I didn't rule my life. Ignorance did. I did not have a clue what was going on with myself. And all these relationships, I mean, it, it was proven by the fact she had me go through each relationship and talk about each person. And at the end of this process, she goes, Rick, these, all these people sound great. And I said, they were. And she said, so what was wrong? I said, I, I just, I didn't feel the certainty. Where do you think that came from? Because you described yourself in the book as kind of this nerdy kid, always studious, you know, you, you were like the model child, like the family that you were brought up in. And so you were emulating what was happening or what you were seeing. And you're saying that that wasn't all of it then. Well, I'll get to that in about 20 seconds. Okay. um, The next question she asked me is what do all these people have in common that you dated? And I said, they're all women. (laughs) It looks at me really disappointed. And she says, go deeper. And I said, me? And she said, yeah. Have you ever thought that the problem may be you? Well, it was probably so obvious to absolutely everybody around me. It had never even occurred to me because I was raised with this very positive self-concept. And, uh, and, and in fact, it, it, it didn't upset me. It, it inspired me because I thought, well, if it's my problem, I can fix it. And so the next six months was dedicated to looking at my childhood and walking through my relationship. At that point, I realized that my problem was is that in my family, harmony was more important than truth. And we were a uh, you know waspish, <laughs> Protestant, white family, two mm-hmm. kids, two parents, happily married. But it occurred to me that I never heard an argument in our family. So whenever I would date somebody and suddenly there would be some conflict, I would be out of there. I think, well, this can't be right. And what I learned eventually was that conflict is an essential part of a relationship because it helps you negotiate values and become together who you wish to be. And uh, so that, that was just, uh, I was sort of stuck in a 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, uh, pattern of the way kids are raised in those sorts of families. And in many ways, I admired the, uh, my Catholic friends and Jewish friends, you know, who just go crazy and yell about everything. It's like, I never got to do that. Well, you know, given that conflict or lack thereof conflict, I know myself, I've avoided conflict. I'm a conflict avoider um, because to me, it seems to bring hurt. I'd, I'm going to make a side note question here about your thoughts because look, you've been interviewing kids, uh, teenagers for some time. 
And here we are, as you and I sit here in the middle, not only of this pandemic, but now these riots, or I should say this unrest in the cities. Mm -hmm. And that is conflict at its highest level. That's anger, right? When you express anger to somebody, you do it in many different ways, whatever it is, throwing the bottles, things are going on. What do you sense that people have stuffed inside them so long because you've been interviewing 5,700 kids who, when I watched your videos, I could see that these feelings are, are they've been stuffed, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you feel about um, today, somebody who's done so much of this, helping these people get all these stuffed emotions out? Yeah. Well, I think first and foremost, the step is is to appreciate emotions for what they are. They are actually the one thing that never lies to us. Like if we're feeling upset, we're feeling upset for a reason. If we're feeling angry, we're feeling angry for a reason. And and if we're feeling love, we're feeling love for a reason. It, and it all sources in your amygdala, that little little part of your brain that was saving us on the savanna when you know we'd be chased by predators and it was fight or flight. You know, it's, it's the thing that tells us when we get too close to the edge of something, back up. It's our friend. It's a good thing. But we're often told, especially, especially boys, but girls as well, we're often told, you know, like the 10-year-old boy who starts to express some feelings about something, oh, man up, you know. And what, what's, he, what's he being told at that time? He's being told that the one source of truth in his life, his emotions, you know, is that they can't be trusted. And so we grow up into a sort of sick society where nobody trusts the one fundamental thing that is there in their life that tells them the truth. Now, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you act on those emotions. It doesn't mean if you're angry, did you go out and kill somebody? Because quite frankly, you know, your right to free speech and your right to protest and action you know, is limited if somebody else is being harmed, mm -hmm. which was what set this thing off in the in the first place the whole injustice surrounding treatment you know of this gentleman in minneapolis and so I, there's this is when when i interview kids on one hand i try to celebrate their emotion and get them to feel comfortable with it because their brain will lie to them i, I have interviews with kids where they're going i'm happy i really am and tears are streaming down their face right i saw that yeah, yeah. there's we speak in subtext. Our brain plays, you know, jokes on us all the time. Not very funny ones, but our emotions, if we learn to listen to them and source them, where do they come from? And then experience them like this thing makes you angry. What you saw in that video, it makes you angry. You shouldn't suppress that anger. You should feel that anger. But then when you decide what to do about it, that's when I go into what I call my 5,000 days story cue process, you take three deep breaths and you try to get all the emotion you're feeling moving from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex, which is where your language and reasoning skills are. And that's where you start to take action, as Barack Obama said yesterday, that's actually going to be productive. You know, when it breaks out strictly in violence, and granted, there's a whole bunch of agendas going on. Right, now, right. But the violence does violence to the very cause that you're trying to bring attention to because the violence becomes a story instead of, you know, the injustice. And so I'm a big fan of getting people to acknowledge the value of emotion in their lives. Well, 
one of the things that's important is if you allow yourself to be ruled by the emotions, like you say, I like what you said, take a couple of deep breaths, maybe take two or three, because that helps you to calm yourself and everything that's running through you, all the adrenaline that's being built up as a result of that anger. And, and as you know, when we get into kind of this mob consciousness as well, which is what's happening, you start to go with the flow. I mean, you even saw in one of your videos, the kids at school that would get in fights, right? And pick on somebody, right? It's easier to say, oh, well, let's, we can do this as a group and pick on him, right? Because mm-hmm. bullying is a big thing. Yeah. Now, at 57 filmed interviews, you've now done perhaps more in-depth interviews with kids than anybody. You've done way more than I. I thought I was close at 800. I'm looking at you going, wow, this guy's a master at interviews. What lessons have you learned through the interviews with these kids? I was watching uh, your full-length 5,000 Days Project uh, video last night, and I want to just call it the flow of emotions throughout their lives. Um, Because, you know, obviously 5,000 days, you break that down. What is that? Close to seven years, something like that? Uh, Actually, more like 13. It's roughly the time it takes to go through school. Okay. So that's the point is, is that you could see them maturing. You could see them doing things. You could see the emotions, maybe the same emotions, but expressed in different ways. What have you learned as a result of 5,700 interviews? Well, one thing above all, and that is that we own nothing more valuable than our own story. Like we own stuff. Some of us may have money, but what's more important than deciding and discovering who we are and who we're meant to be? And once you realize this asset that you have in your story, it becomes so empowering and it becomes an instrument for raising your EQ, better understanding yourself and your purpose and those around you. It's got so many advantages. Let me just mention one. When you start to tell your own story, you have to make the vital decision of, are you going to be the main character in your story? Are you going to be a secondary character in someone else's? Are you going to be the captain of your own ship? Or are you going to be a passenger on someone else's? Are you going to let circumstance define you? Or are you going to define yourself? And we all know that the world is full of victims. We all know them, people to whom life happens to. But once you start learning to tell your story and seeing the impact that you can have, you start to discover something amazing. And that is that every thought, every movement, every step, every action, every moment of every day, you're writing your autobiography in real time. Mm -hmm. Like think of the power of that. If, If you wanna be a better son, be a better son. If you wanna be a more courageous person, Be a more courageous person. Just start today. Do it. If you want to learn to play the piano, learn to play the piano. I mean, you have so much agency at your fingertips. And as you learn to tell your own story, um, you start to discover the power of that that agency. Um, Well, and you're you're talking about actions you can choose to make, provided you you, you make that choice. Inactivity is one of the biggest challenges. It's also contraction. We look at what happened with COVID. The fear is contraction. The more fear you have, the more contracted you become. The more fearless you become, the more expansive you become. And I think that's what I saw in those kids as well. 
And you know, you tell a great personal story about the fact that you were getting these three migraine headaches per week. And while you were doing these interviews with the kids, right? Can you tell the story about yourself and how those emotions of these kids were affecting you physically, emotionally, and spiritually? Because the reality is that's what was going on. You didn't quite understand it at the time. I know you were seeking some help and you actually went into um, um, mindfulness and meditation to help with the headaches. So I'd love to have you tell the story because it, it was a good part of the book. Yeah, well, it's actually a story about the connection between our physical and our mental health, our emotional health. Um, so about 15 years ago, I started out of the blue getting three migraines a week. And I went through every treatment you could imagine, tried every sort of medication. Yeah, I had one doctor even try to sell me like a $40,000 operation that put a little electrical charge in my chest that would spark. I mean, it was an endless amount and nothing worked. Actually, one medication did work for me, but, but I, I could only take it so often, only twice a week. So it, it was a problem. And I went through this for close to 10 years. And so I met with my uh, counselor, who is a big fan of what I've been doing, which was largely inspired by her, actually. And she said, well, Rick, do you, uh, do you hear some pain when you talk to these kids every day, every two days? And I right. said... Yes. And she said, well, what do you do with that pain? And I said, well, um, my first five years of interviews, I would come home and I would cry. I would cry over kids having to go through things I never had to go through. Like, why did they have to go through that pain? And she said, then what happened? I said, well, after about five years, um, I started to realize that that expression, that catharsis was key to healing and that that was actually a, a good thing for them. And she said, okay, so uh, what'd you do with the pain that you heard? And I said, well, I just can think I rationalized that this was good for them. That this, she said, no, no. What did you do with the pain that was coming into right. your, you know, your first five years, you didn't have headaches right. and you cried. And then you stopped expressing yourself that way. And then you spent the last, you know, series of years having these headaches. What, what do you do with pain? And I said, what do you mean, what do I do with the pain? I, like, I rationalize whenever she says, yeah, it goes in, but you're not processing. You're not doing anything with it. And by the end, you know, just all gets stocked up inside of you. And she said, I think part of it is expressing itself in this pain of your headache. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, part of this to me was, oh, is this mumbo jumbo? You know, I'm very suspicious. Right. Of that. And uh, she said, so I'm just going to give you a test. I'm going to give you a couple of mindfulness exercises um, as to what to do with pain. Like it goes in, somebody tells you a devastating story. You allow yourself to feel it. You allow yourself to be devastated. And then you shoot it out of your fingers or your toes or whatever. Right. Within three weeks, I was down to one migraine a week. Yeah. And then, and then none. And, well, I wish there was none. I, mm -hmm. I also have some neck problems, which exacerbates it. But uh, it largely solved my problems. Well, it's interesting. The Buddhists have a, a meditation called Tung Lin, and it's to breathe in actually all the pain of the world and then to breathe it out, right? In other words, to breathe it out with love. So whatever you're taking in and whatever you're breathing out. And I remember going to meditation retreats on the Orcas Islands, not too far from you, 
Yes. And we would practice that particular meditation about taking in who's, who's ever pain. Yeah. And you were taking in a lot of pain, right? Yeah. And then breathe it out with love and compassion mm-hmm. so that you weren't affected by it, but also you were helping the other person heal. So as funny as that amount of sound, I will tell you that that worked tremendously. Now, you, the richness of this book really is in the stories. There's tons of stories, and they're wonderful. And one struck me. You know, you've gone all over the world interviewing kids. And one story that you had about Sophia, is that his name? Am I saying it right? Sophia. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting because it doesn't sound like a boy's name, but it's a boy. <laughs> He's a young man in Sunrise Orphanage in Cambodia, uh, whose mother died, and then his father abandoned him to this orphanage, which I thought was interesting. And he and he had a brother as well, right? Uh, a couple of brothers and sisters. Yeah. yeah. So you, I'd like for you to express the story because you know what happened, uh, the pain this young man was going through these various interviews you did with him. Tell our listeners, because at the heart of your book are these really, really rich stories, and you're say- and then you give lessons at the end, your takeaways. I love the takeaways. You know, what are, what are you learning? You know, what was it? And then what, did, what are you going to take away and what are you going to do? Well, the story of Sophia is actually related to the thing I just talked about in terms the of- The headache? No, the one before, in terms of- uh, uh, us are we going to be defined by our, by our circumstances? Or are we going to define ourselves? And so, uh-huh. yeah, really interesting story. So, ten years ago, I was asked to bring the Five Thousand Days Project to Sunrise Orphanages in Cambodia mm-hmm. by two brilliant, you know, women who felt that orphans had just as much right to emotional intelligence as kids in developed countries. And uh, so I, I uh, went and did my first year's interview and uh, the whole series of kids from this orphanage, one of which was Sophia, who at the time was 11 years old. Right. As you said, Sophia's mother had died in childbirth. The father, heartbroken, had just abandoned the boy, blamed him for it. And Sophia ends up at the Sunrise Orphanages. And so when I interviewed him at age 11, he was very quiet. He was very withdrawn. Mostly was just sort of interested that anybody was interested in him, you know, because asking somebody, how are you, is actually a a sort of a luxury in a country that's gone through genocide. And so anyway, but year after year, we got deeper and deeper into discussion. Finally, when he was age 14, I realized I was at a crucial point in Sophia's life because, first of all, 14 is when boys start to raise all those barriers as to what it means to be a man and you know they start to sink within themselves unless they've dealt dealt with their emotions and um, the second thing was at age 14 sunrise orphanage had discovered that Sophia's father had been living within 10 miles of the orphanage his entire life and yeah. had never come to visit him mm-hmm. so i said to Sophia, i said Sophia, you know you've just learned that your father's living nearby how do you feel about him not visiting you and see him kind of stiffen up and go, well, he's, he's very busy. And, <laughs> and I said, um, we, oh, what about holidays and such? And he says, well, he's a farmer. Farmers work every day. I said, Sophia, you and I have talked about everything. I'm just going to cut to the chase. I want to know how you feel about the fact that your father is not bothered to come see you. And suddenly, Niagara Falls. Yeah. 
and just burst out of tears. And I saw a lifetime of, of pain and hurt pour out of this 14-year-old boy, pain over never having been held by his mother, pain over his father not caring enough to visit him. And he sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And we, Marianne, my executive producer, and I just sort of stood there and hold, held him. Next year we go back, the kid is completely different. He is on fire. He's learned to speak English. He's got a job in the tourist industry, he's still going to school, earning his degree. Uh, and he's just making leap after leap after leap. After this catharsis, he decided he was going to be who he wanted to be. Most significantly, he was visiting his father once a week. He would go out those 10 miles on his bicycle. And while he couldn't control the father he had, he could control the son that he wanted to be. Exactly. The story ultimately being Sophia was not about to let the most difficult circumstances you could be born into determine who he was going to be. He was going to determine who he was himself. I just was with him literally two months ago in Cambodia before this whole thing broke out. And uh, the kid is 20 years old and uh, just on fire. Yeah, I saw the second picture in the book as well. So again, for my listeners, the 21 things you've forgotten about being a kid. Rick, what have you forgotten? (laughs) That's a great question. Before I proceeded on this uh, journey, I remember there's this thing that happens when you become a teenager where you kind of just, you know, push your childhood down. And all the painful stuff. In fact, that's the whole kind of premise of the book that people tell you, your parents tell you, as any adult ever told you, you know, enjoy high school. It's the best years of your life. And I don't know what your response was when you heard that, but mine was panic. It's like, (laughs) really? This is it? And then I have talked to endless kids since then. Every one of them have been told this. And so what is it that happens in us where then we turn around and tell our kids, enjoy high school. It's the best years of your life. Uh, it's it's what, fic- what lies have we been telling those kids? Well, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, in us, it's arrested development. Yeah. It's, it is that we push away certain memories uh, and we rose tint those memories. And then we pass on that fiction to our kids which is the first in a series of things we forget about what it's like to be a kid. And one of the most obvious ones, I think it's my first one in the book, uh, first chapter, one is the loneliest number. Kids really want to talk. They yeah. have yet to meet a kid that doesn't want to talk. And I know you look at your 13-year-old, 14-year-old, it's a picture of mine, my son Oliver in the book, at seven, angelic, and at 14, you know, and it's that look. This says, don't talk to me. I don't want to relate, you know, whatever. That is just a surface. Every kid really, really wants to talk and needs you to talk to them. And I think that most of the barriers that are put up to teens come from the the discomfort we have as adults talking to kids about some of the issues that they need to talk about whether it be emotions, whether it be sexuality, whether it be politics, we have this little block that's sort of uncomfortable and we project that on our kids and they project it back on us like a mirror until I started talking to kids how much they want to talk. So you're saying that's one thing you forgot. I think the most important thing is how cathartic it is. And 
It's obvious that people want to talk. The question is, are there people asking the right questions and doing it in a demeanor that allows somebody else to want to answer? And is that trust there? Right? Because look, anybody could come up and ask somebody a question, but unless you have the ability to create immediate trust and compassion and love for that person, or as much as you can, you don't know what response you're going to get. And I think in yours, you got great responses from all these kids. And it's because of you, the growth that you've gone through. I see that. It's a reflection. It's a mirror. And not everybody can do, you know, I, I see so many people saying, I want to go in podcasting business even. And I go, well, great. And then I see how they do it. And I'm like, well, maybe a little more emotion, maybe a little more understanding, maybe finding whatever the Socratic method of asking questions, whatever it might be. And, you know, you created a new field you call personal story mentoring. What is that exactly? Well, it's actually helping kids make a movie of their life because I interview them once a year using their own story in their own words. And through that process, helping them discover themselves, helping them raise their EQ, and helping them develop tools to live and function in this crazy world. And it's never been more crazy than it is right now. And it's very nice of you to say that you think it's me, but I actually don't think that's true. I think that it's important to come from a loving place. It's important to come from a non-judgmental place. Um, and hopefully those are things that, that I've developed uh, in my interview style. But mostly I think it's a question of asking the right questions in the right order, in the right setting, the right way at the right time to help kids get to their right answers that reflect whatever values they have. And so I think the technique is actually available to most people if they wish to learn it. But I think that it, I mean, we're, look, we're all born into a great mystery. And the biggest question we have to answer is, who in the world am I? That's why I said you, you own nothing more valuable than your own story. And so personal story mentoring, which is, uh, you can read about it on the 5000daysproject.org uh, slash PSM uh, website, is all about taking kids through that process and helping them develop into hopefully functioning human beings that don't have to be in therapy when they're 40, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, because you've helped them find themselves before they lose themselves in adolescence. It's interesting. And in, in your book, you know, you talk about healing that comes from learning to tell your own story. Yeah. I think the key word there is learning how to tell your own story. How does it work? I know when I went back to school late in life and got a master's in spiritual psychology, mm. that we would do, we would go back in the history of our families and find out all of the information about aunts and uncles and grandfathers and grandmothers and, you know, put that together and look at the lineage, right? To see how I may have been affected by that. Yeah. I thought right. it was really, that was extremely cathartic to say, oh, you had a grandfather was an alcoholic or a womanizer or, or this or that or whatever. Other than the information, it allowed me to kind of 
figure out my story and allow me to understand more about not my just my ancestry, but really who these people were, mm. right? And that from eons of time, as far as you want to go back, all the stories we're telling today, there is a thread. Wow. And um, I want to know how, if you're talking to an adult right now, right? Let's see, because most of my listeners are adult and they're going to read your book, 21 Things You Forgot About Being a Kid. How would you tell them to figure out their story and to get through the pain? Well, I've discovered something else through all these interviews that is inexplicable to me. I think each of us is born with an incredibly deep well of wisdom. I cannot explain it, where it comes from, but I see it in almost everybody I interview. And I interview a lot of adults as well. And the way you get to that deep well, well, let's put it this way. We have this something called our immune system, which if we get a cut on our hand, all the forces in our body go so, you know, to heal that cut. We have, if we get a cold, you know, all our, the antibodies start to form and we, you know, it, that all happens automatically. Does not happen to us emotionally. Does not happen in our mental wellness. Right. But it can if you unlock it. And the way you unlock it is with the right questions. And that's what personal story mentoring is about. There's also any series of questions that get to the heart of sort of the two themes that I think go on in individuals, which is basically their longings, what they want, and their fears, things that they're afraid of. Anything that kind of gets to that core is going to help you eventually get to this deep well of wisdom that I think allow could allow us to heal 80% of the ills that that we suffer from in this world in terms of mental illness. I think we have actually the tools to solve most of those things ourselves if we can access it. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I, it does. Because I think people who are on the journey, whether you know you do your journaling, you keep saying this is videography, so you get to video journals, right? A lot of people write journals. Um, you know, I, I remember what was cathartic for me was writing in a journal and then burning the pages, letting those things go, right? Yeah. Um, you know, with video, you get to capture what's really live and what's happening for somebody, right? Yeah. And it's, it's really um, a fascinating process, what you've gone through. Even the interviews I have with authors, I, um, even though I, the, uh, many of them are audio, you can pick up on the nuances. A curious question that is often asked by you is, who's writing your autobiography? Because that goes along with, you know, what we just talked about, uh, which was telling the story. And you say, isn't that apparent? And I don't think, Rick, for a lot of people that it is because this, we used to have a saying, you don't have to believe everything you think. So that makes up story. Also, the stories that you make up right, are the ones that you start to live. So if that's the case, and we are part of this a collective imagination, we can make up a new story. Mm-hmm. And I think the important thing is letting people figure out how to make up the new story. So you say, isn't that apparent? 
it's not to a lot of people. So how would you explain that, that people can start to make up a new story if they don't like the story they have? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I watched your recent uh, interview with Doug Holliday, my good friend, uh, Rethinking Success. And Doug tells the story of Peter Buffett, Warren Buffett's uh, son. Peter said, everybody is born into someone else's story. And Peter's story is one where he needs to decide whether he's going to be Warren Buffett's son or whether he's going to be perfect, you know, Peter Buffett. And uh, Doug tells the story beautifully. And that's the core of the question of who's writing your autobiography. It's the recognition that you have within your hands, this power to decide what you're going to do after you see this podcast. You know, after, after you have breakfast in the morning, every moment of every day, you have a chance to redirect your story and become who you want to become. Unless you've got a victim's mentality, and then you sit back, you've handed all your power away, and you can't affect change. So the, so the key to that question, who's writing your autobiography, you know, it's, it's tongue-in-cheek, but I want you to write your autobiography. Right. You're saying, that's what you're telling people, to write their own. You know, um, this concept about somebody else's puppet, I found interesting. You claim we're all someone else's puppet. This goes along with the story, right? This goes along with figuring out our story. This goes along with telling our story. Who or what is, as you ask in this, your puppet master? And I think that question begets you saying, I'm the puppet master not somebody else. But we often give that control away. And I think the question here is, why do we give up control to someone else to be our puppet master? Mm. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what mine is. I have a couple, but one I can focus on where uh, I serve a uh, a puppet master is impatience. My entire life, I have been incredibly impatient. I can tell you story after story of things I may have blown because of my impatience. And in fact, there is nothing like starting a project that never ends, like the 5,000 Days Project, to solve your impatience problems. It's largely helped me because it was always ruling me. It was this boss, this impatience, you know, and it would lead me to do things I was its victim. I was its puppet. It lead me to do things that, in the end, weren't in my interest, weren't in my heart. And so now, I mean, the great thing about the 5,000 Days Project is I will die doing this. I just feel bad for the kid that's going to have to deal with the body when I keel over, you know. So. Well, it again, you what you're bringing to light with the book is really story and and how we get the story out and how emotionally that story helps. One of the things you talk about is the sanctity of campfires in your campfire 101 class. And I remember I watched those boys in your video who were boy scouts. I became a life scout. I never made it to Eagle, but I remember all the great times I had in scouts. Order of the Arrow and getting the badges and doing order of the arrow too. I was an Order of the Arrow guy. Yeah. Let me tell you, I had to go stay overnight out in the jungle. <laughs> what is it about the campfires when you sit around a campfire and you get to tell story and play music that just makes it easier to let your story go? Well, it's the oldest of all traditions. 
telling stories to the campfire. It's, it's in our DNA. It's just an absolute essential part of us. And, you know, it's, and why do we tell stories? There's a whole bunch of reasons why we tell stories, education, entertainment, whatever. But most of all, I think is told in the story I'm about to tell you. Uh, December 26, 2004, an Aboriginal man is standing on the beach looking out and he notices that the water is moving strangely. He notices that the clouds are moving strangely. He notices that the monkeys and the birds have stopped making noises. And he knew from stories that had been passed down in his tribe for generations that a tsunami was about to come. And he went and he grabbed everybody in his village, brought them to high ground. Nobody in his village got killed, unlike a quarter of a million people um, throughout Southeast Asia. And it just goes to show that we, we tell stories because they save our lives. <laughs> They're absolutely the key to our survival. And, and hopefully, I mean, there is this, uh, uh, this wonderful African expression that goes, when an old person dies, a library burns down. You know, when you think about the sheer waste of human knowledge and potential that goes out the door every day because we don't keep 99% of our stories. We have not, man, now that we have the technology, which is part of what I'm trying to do, you know, this collective wisdom that could build the library, the human library, in a way that would help us avoid the same mistakes that we're paying for in village, you know, in city after city <laughs> right now with, with all the rage ex exploding. I mean, the amount of things we have to learn from each other's stories, it's like we're, we're born and we immediately start taking, we take air, we take food, we take space. The only thing we really ever have to leave humanity is our story. Yeah. We can yeah. do it in a way that yeah. can help us avoid future mistakes, that can save lives, that can build understanding and tolerance and all the things that are of value to us. I mean, that's why I think we own nothing more vital than our own stories. And we need to find a way, this is part of my mission, to get So what is, what is your vision for that? I mean, look, the elders that have been in tribes for years have been telling story. I'm doing an interview on a book called Sand Talk, which is Aborigine written down in Australia, right? Oh, yeah. Tyson. Yeah. And, you know, they would just draw it in the sand, right? Um, what is your vision for this project? And uh, what? how would you like to get our listeners involved? Well, somebody asked me a little while ago, what's your ambition? And I said, I want every kid in the world to learn to tell their story because of the benefits of it. But I realized that that ambition was too small. What I really needed to do was find a way for everybody to tell their story so that the process not only helps them discover who they are and who they're meant to be, but also builds a human library. And there are certain organizations that are doing that in pieces around StoryCorps. is a great example. I love StoryCorps. The reason I want to do it on video is that 85% of human communication is nonverbal, which is why I know I'm glad you're going to video here. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's literally the expressions tell more of the story than anything else. And 
I would like to start a Peace Corps for Story. I'd like to have an ambassador for Story at the UN. I would like to get every school and every company involved in collecting stories and build this incredible library so that we have more than just the golden record in space. We have something that is truly a tribute to who we are, told in the most honest of means. Like social media could have been that, but it really hasn't evolved that way. It probably still could be. But Facebook is more about who we want people to believe we are than who we are. That's why we're often referred to sort of as the anti-Facebook, a 5,000 days project, because it's all about telling your truth. Yeah, it's it's so true how, and this isn't a, a dig against Facebook or any of the social media, but that how people caught up, they all keep saying and you know, kind of keeping up with the Joneses, you know, it's, that isn't so important. What's as important is the the richness of who you're becoming by what you're, who you're being mm. and what you're doing, right? So it's that being doing conundrum, right? I write about it in my own book uh, that, you know, we, as you said, you were really impatient because you always wanted to go do something, right? Usually that impatience is about not getting enough done. Uh, the other side of it is as you slow down and you mature, you realize that the opportunity exists in really taking in those moments, those true moments with richness to improve your story. Because a lot of times we're either growing through something or we're going through something. Mm. I don't want to be the person that goes through something. I want to be the person that grows through something. And to grow takes some reflection, just like what you're doing. Takes an opportunity to sit and reflect. And this book, I'm going to say to all my listeners, uh, 21 Things You Forgot uh, About Being a Kid, A Partial Guide to Better Understanding Our Children and Ourselves by Dr. Rick Stevens, who's been on with us, is a phenomenal book for you looking at that. And Rick, if there is any one thing, message you'd like to leave our listeners as we part this interview, what might you want to tell them today? We're going to have links to all of your websites, the information that you've provided to us in your socials and media. Um, what would you want to leave them with? I think I want to tell them that when you share your own story, you free people up to tell theirs. And then that's what creates human connection, which is what we all seek. It's why when I share my weakness, I thought you were going into my second weakness, which is I live in the future. <laughs> where <laughs> I really need to live in the present. So I'm, I've been really working on the everlasting now, which is what you just described, which is all we ever have right. is right now. And right. that's what the project's taught me, that it's the journey, not the destination. And so I think I would, I would want people to know that just take risks, be vulnerable. We, as Doug said in his interview, we connect out of our weakness, not out of our strength. And I have seen that time and time again. And I'm so, gonna, I'm gonna do something I normally don't do, but I, I want to show you this. Uh, the, my son, because you and I had these, we have these same challenges. So there might be a little bit of edit in this video, but I got to reach for something and show it to you. Okay. So here's one thing that sits on my desk all the time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and here's something that's on my wall. So excuse this. I have to get up. It's a now clock. 
And there's actually no time. And it actually goes back and forth. And it just sits there on my wall all the time. But there's actually no time on the clock. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna sell lots of these. I hope on Amazon you have whatever one of those connection things. I don't, are. I don't, but the guy lives local to me here in the city that I'm in. But this is the cutest thing that I ever got for a Christmas present. I need to buy one of those. I will send you the guy's information. How's okay. that? Thank you. So thank you for being on the show. Be here now. Get Rick's book. He's a great individual. Go to his website. Watch his videos. Learn more about him. Rick, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for your time, your wisdom, uh, your heartfelt responses, and really the fact that you took a different trajectory in life and wanted to help kids heal emotionally. Thanks so much for that. Thanks for all you do, Greg. Appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by Maria Cuban Whitesell. She is the author of a new book entitled You Can't Do It Alone, A Widow's Journey Through Loss, Grief, and the Life Thereafter. Please join Maria and Greg on Podcast 790 as they discuss Maria and Sean, her husband's personal story, as they battled Sean's geoblastoma. Her heartwarming story takes you through the ups and downs, and you'll learn what is necessary to cope and comfort their five-year-old son, Gus, through the whole process. Her book is emotional, yet filled with practical advice for anyone dealing with the prospective loss of a loved one. If you want to learn more about Maria, her book, You Can't Do It Alone, and their personal story, please go to www.mariaquiban.com. I hope you enjoy this wonderful interview with someone whose words can comfort and support caregiving for someone dealing with life-threatening diseases.